I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Anessa Tabassum is a psych nurse, domestic abuse survivor, and woman's advocate based in Austin, Texas. She brings awareness to social issues such as domestic and sexual abuse that are often stigmatized. She's an advocate for empowering men and women across the globe to live healthy and purposeful lives. She's always sharing advice with her audience ranging from nursing, thriving post-trauma, and lifestyle finds or products. With almost 450,000 followers on TikTok and over 48,000 on Instagram, she hopes to continue to inspire and bring light to important issues the community faces in order to help the next generation of men and women. So please welcome to the show, Anessa Tabasso. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for agreeing to come on and share your story with us. I mean, I came across your Instagram page sometime during the pandemic. And because I could totally relate having had left a toxic relationship, I started following you and listening to your tips. And I love seeing the evolution and the growth within your own life. And I'm just grateful uh, for you to come on and share your experience today. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And honestly, being on social media and like sharing my journey for as long as I have, it's been like, you know, I always get those comments every once in a while. I'd be like, oh my God, I remember seeing you from like two years ago talking about this and look at you now. You know, it's always just a constant reminder. I'm like, you know, I feel like so many people are on this journey with me and it just makes me so happy. Yes, it's a beautiful journey. And I want to get to where you are presently. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about where things all started, because I love to understand people's mindset from they were young and how things evolved and shifted to where they are presently. So I would love to know, what were you like as a teenager? And what were your aspirations then? Yeah, oh, my God, that's a really good question. I don't think I I get asked that often. So as a teenager, I was definitely the very shy, very quiet, 
um, just just very introverted. And the reason behind that is because I grew up in a very religious and conservative family. And um, I was in the very unique place called North Dakota. So, you know, North Dakota has a lot of, it doesn't have a lot of diversity, right? And as a minority woman of color, I definitely did not look like everybody else that was there. You know, at the time I would cover my hair and whatnot. Um, and I was, I was the only girl in my high school of like 3000 people that covered her hair, wow. let alone one of the very few people that was actually like brown, you know? Mm-hmm. So growing up felt I was, I grew very introverted because I felt very isolated. So unfortunately that's just kind of how, how I lived a lot of my life, especially even going through college. I had a good set of friends, but I realized, you know, when all your friends are, you know, to be very blunt, white, you start wanting to be white. At least that's how I felt, you know, at a very young and impressionable age, being very sheltered. Everything I wore, I, I tried to morph it into what they wore, but make it in a more modest way and stuff like that. Um, looking back, it really just makes me chuckle. And it kind of makes me really sad. I'm like, my whole identity was trying to fit into a different race of people. You know what I mean? It wasn't until like my mid twenties when I started to be very comfortable um, representing my own culture and actually representing me in in the way that I want to be portrayed. Um, so that's kind of how I grew up. I have one older sister who's basically like my second mom. She's five years <laughs> older than me and just helped raise me as well. That's kind of how I grew up. Currently, I live in Austin, Texas. I'm definitely still that very introverted girl with embracing my own culture and then embracing kind of who I am. I'm definitely, I'm definitely borderline extroverted, introverted <laughs> now. And I think you have to be extroverted to some extent if, you know, you're posting online and, you know, talking about your sto- story and being an advocate. So yeah. yeah, that's just kind of how I was raised. Wow. So I feel like now I'm going to go down a, a different direction than I even wanted to a little uh, bit because I feel like the topic, especially for Black History Month, for me, a huge part of the conversation has been my experience either being the first only or different black person in a room. And oftentimes I'm either the only black woman on a panel or the only black, you know, speaker or the only black female coach at, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine some of the experiences that you had growing up in the U S the only Brown girl, I'm sure there were certain things that happened that you had to heal from, including what you mentioned, like, you know, that identity shift that you had to make. I guess I'm curious, what were some of the challenges outside of that that you had to face? And how did you work through that? I think um, a big thing that I think about, and I think a lot of uh, girls that at that age go through is the idea of feeling pretty. I, I, I can't remember the first time I actually genuinely felt pretty in my own skin, because you know, you always you look at the other girls and you're like, I look different and nobody looks at me the way they look at them. You know what I mean? Being so confident, confident, my melanin in my skin. It wasn't until my college days, I'll be honest, that I actually felt like that. And it was until I moved out of North Dakota that I actually felt like that. It's honestly, it's just so, it's so sad to say it right now. You know what I mean? But that's unfortunately the truth that I lived for the longest time. I was always like the different girl in the room, right? And so a lot of my conversations um, in college and in high school were centered around 
oh my God, tell me about your culture. That is so unique. Can you tell me more about this and that? And eventually I just wanted to be a freaking person. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the shiny toy in every single room. Like everyone was so overly welcoming to the point where I just felt so different all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like every conversation doesn't have to be about where I'm from and my traditions and stuff like that. You know, I'm not constantly yeah. asking you about where your tradition of X, Y, and Z came from. You know, I'm just living in it. It's y'all's yeah. world that I'm just living in it, apparently, you know? <laughs> so the over-hospitality just became isolating to me growing mm. up, you know? Yeah. And I love when I can, like somewhere like Austin, Texas, we're so diverse here. This is probably the most um, liberal, like unique city in all of Texas. And I'm so glad I live here because I can actually like go somewhere or go into a room and I don't feel different. Everybody looks different. Everyone has a different background. No one's too curious about this and that because a lot of people already have like a good common knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more woke as they say. And um, yeah, I'm just so glad I, I branched out of that and feeling insecure about myself all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- it speaks to the importance of representation matters, right? It doesn't It doesn't matter what type of representation, whether you're talking about being a female, being a person of color, being like whatever, representation matters. If you don't see people that look like you or you don't see, I, I, you don't feel comfortable in a certain environment because everyone else is different. You know, we feel like we don't fit in. Part of our brain is like wanting to be a part of something and to fit in, to feel connected because right. we're wired for connection. So I can only imagine, um, you know, the inner struggles that you had to deal with. So I guess even with that, I would love to know with your parents, because you talked a little bit about your upbringing with your family, you know, we're all born into a particular set of circumstances where our values are defined by what we experience. So I would love to know a little bit more about your upbringing, and then we can get into how you got to where you are today. Throw it all the way back. Um, I'm from Bangladesh. So it's like a country right beside India. Uh, My parents were both born and raised there. I was also born there as well, along with my sister. I think it's really fair to say that my parents, like my dad, he, he was born into a very like poor village didn't have electricity off and on, um, barely had running water. My mom was a little bit better circumstances. But again, like, they were nowhere near like, well off or even close to that. They were living in villages, right? And then my dad really worked his way up. He's got he got his education, then he got the chance to come to America, which was like, the thing to do back in the day. That's like, wow, he's made it. He's going to America, everything's going to change for them. Um, got married with my mom, had us too. And then at the age of three, I moved to America, right? So already, like, they left their entire lives behind. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To navigate this new set, new sets of culture, new sets of like, just everything. It's just a culture shock to them, right? So I firmly believe that my parents did the best they could with what they had growing up, you know, as all our parents have. But you know, a lot of immigrants were were at a cross between our culture that we're born into and the new culture they threw us into, you know, and it's constantly like, Oh my God, are they going to remember their past? Or they're just going to become Americanized completely, you know? So it was, it was a constant like tug of war my entire life over what I should be doing. For example, you know, when we turn 18, it's not like our parents are like, okay, y'all can like leave the house and become adults. It's especially women. We stay in the house until we're married. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And staying in the house still comes with a sets of rules. Like we can't be out a certain age, uh, a certain time. So like I had to be home by 9 p.m. even at the age of 22. Like there was no exceptions ever. Mm-hmm. You know, just still stuff like that. And then my friends being like, oh my God, like you're you're 20. Like why are your parents making you stay at home? That's so weird. So like I'm trying to be respectful, but now I'm like called weird and like controlled from my friends. You know, it's just a set of rules that we grew up with. We grew up, I grew up Muslim, right? So we're definitely very conservative to that aspect. But, you know, like my parents definitely did really well. My mom was the, um, like she was a stay at home mom. She raised us. My dad was definitely more emotionally absent, but, you know, he was a provider of the family. Um, We definitely struggled with money quite a bit growing up as my dad being the only sole provider. But, you know, like he made things work. We we did things. Uh, And I wanted to touch on that aspect of us, like not having a lot of money because it really shaped kind of what I did with my life. You know, so like I, uh, you know, we were really focused on studies growing up and I, you know, I got my pick of which college I wanted to go to because I'm like, I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to get scholarships and I'm going to, I'm going to go to whatever college I'm going to make it. But around the time when it come to actually applying to colleges, even though I had got accepted to wherever I wanted to go, I still couldn't afford to go wherever I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Right. At the time I was still considered I had lived in America for like 16 years, but we hadn't even applied for a green card because we didn't have the money. We didn't apply for American citizenship because I I was still an international student, even though I had lived in America my whole life, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is something a lot of people run into as well. So I wasn't eligible for any scholarships, you know, even though I was in top 10% of my class, I was salutatorian. It didn't matter because I couldn't, I couldn't apply for any of these scholarships. So I had to go for like the cheapest route to have my college paid for because I couldn't go into debt. Um, And that's kind of when it hit me that like, doesn't matter how hard you work, some things for some immigrants, like there's just some things that are against us that no matter what we do, like we can't, we don't have Mm. those advantages growing up, you know? And that was like, that was like a huge shock to my system. I'm like, and it really shaped because then I was stuck in North Dakota for another four years and you know I always say like my life would have been so different you know if I was even a green color hoarder or a citizen you know I could have moved somewhere else I could have gotten maybe a better education you know because it's not always about working hard it's about your circumstances and what you're born into Uh, I'm still very blessed and fortunate to have gone to college you know I still had that option but yeah, like things, things really could have been a lot more different. And um, yeah, my parents were just very, very strict. They were very, you know, as immigrant parents are, they wanted to keep us safe. They didn't know what was out there. They want to keep our girls at home, like any extracurriculars. Absolutely not. You, you know, they didn't realize the importance of extracurriculars or joining a club. They just like, you go to school, you come home and nothing bad's going to happen to you. Right. You know what I mean? Um, just this constant fight of like fighting for my rights. And um also respecting their beliefs. And that definitely, you know, I've talked to my therapist quite a bit, but growing up in that way has definitely one of the big reasons why I fell for the type of relationship I did fall into. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to try to get into that because I I can totally understand. um, One, I feel like a lot of 
a lot of us that have immigrant parents, their thought process of raising kids successfully and doing certain things, they they did the best they could with what they knew how to do in that, I guess, time. Yes. And sometimes there are you know, issues with that. And I feel like within every culture, there's things that affect us traumatically that are normal within our own cultures. But I also wanted to speak to your point about, you know, it's not always just about working hard. Um, I think there are are many cultures that have privilege where they don't realize that things are not as easy or accessible to us as it is to them. Something as simple as, you know, getting the best grades isn't enough where someone who doesn't have those challenges, you know, it's super simple. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's great that you spoke to that point. But then, so you mentioned, you know, your upbringing having something to do with the types of things that happen to you afterwards. And then you've also touched on therapy. So let's get into that. On your Instagram, you say you're just one survivor trying to help the other. So mm-hmm. let's break down for the listeners who have no idea who you are, a little bit of your experience and what you had to survive and why you focus on the type of content that you do. Absolutely. So I think what I want to first touch on is growing up, I didn't have a lot of freedom and I didn't have a lot of choices. You know, and when I, I was approaching, you know, in my culture, when you approach the age of like 2021, 20, like you get you get people from all around the community um, proposing like their, their family comes to give you proposals for marriage. Right. Uh, my family was firmly like, no, you have to finish school. You have to get your education before you do all that. Right. Um, but as soon as I, you know, I hit 22, I started talking around. I met this one boy online. Right. He met all the criteria to be my suitor. Right. He. He was Bengali. He was well-educated. He came from money. He lived in California. Like he just seemed like he hit everything that I needed for freedom. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times in our culture, what a lot of younger girls don't understand is that like all our power, all of all the control, like our, our dad, dad kind of controls the lives of the daughter. And then, you know, as soon as they hit a good ripe age, the power transforms transfers from dad to husband it's just there there was never like a you know freedom for the girl it was just transfer of power and that is essentially exactly what happened you know all my freedom I thought I was going to get freedom I thought I was finally going to be able to go out and explore and travel and my ticket out was marriage right and so you know I picked the guy that I thought checked all the boxes you know he he said all the right things and within a few months I was convinced that I was ready to marry you know moving from North Dakota to California I'm like oh my God, I made it. Like, mm-hmm. this is the dream. I have freaking made it. Everyone's gonna be so jealous of me. I'm gonna have all the freedom. There's so much fun things to do in California. And unfortunately, you know, that wasn't the case because if, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, then it always is. Mm-hmm. It nearly always is, you know. The way that I got into this relationship was because they promised me the world and they promised me that everything was gonna be all right. But there was a lot of religious abuse in this relationship as well. And I definitely want to touch on that on what that exactly means. So religious abuse, obviously, is when you use religion to coerce somebody into making certain decisions. So like in our religion, it is said that, you know, premarital sex is like one of the three major sins. And just basically any encounter with somebody like dating even is a very huge sin. You know, you can't do anything physical or emotional with somebody until you're actually married to them. So this person would use that to basically convince me to marry him faster than I was ready for. Mm. Um, Within three months of us talking, he was like, we are currently sinning. You know, are you a good Muslim? Like, do you want to be a good Muslim? 
you know, just throwing that kind of stuff in my face, you know, it's like, of course, I'm a good Muslim. Yeah, I want to be a good Muslim. But I don't I didn't, I don't think I need to marry you to prove that. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, through a lot of coercion, he had convinced me that I needed to marry him before I was ready. So within about five months of meeting each other, we were already like going through our, our wedding ceremony and stuff like that. And there were a lot of red flags throughout the entire process. However, you know, I ignored them because I thought I was in love and I thought I was getting a really good deal out of this. You know, I was finally moving out of my parents' house and getting that freedom. And unfortunately, within less within less than a month of me being married, the physical abuse started. Wow. And, you know, at that point, it was just like, I'm 22 years old. Is this really what I want out of my life? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not like I had known this man for years and years. I'm like, I've only known this guy for six months. This cannot be what my story is moving forward. You know, and this realization came even after, like, I had been physically abused a few times. You know, it wasn't just one time. You know, it's just this this thing that was running through my hand over and over again about what I should do. Eventually, you know, I got very lucky and my family did whatever they could to get me out. And a lot of people are not fortunate in that way. A lot of people, you know, a lot of parents will be like, no, marriage is one and done. Like, you have to make it work and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Luckily, my, my family was not like that at all and did whatever I could to get out of that situation. Again, I'm very, very lucky because that's not the case for most people. Right. You know, a lot of people have kids and the complicated thing, a lot of people don't have parents that they're talking to or parents that are not alive or relatives that are not alive to help them, you know, or the resources to even leave. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, and that's a, that's a, that's definitely a big one. But, you know, I talked to my therapist quite a bit after I had I had made the transition of leaving him. And it it really opened my eyes because I'm like, this is all my fault. Like, I'm so stupid. I fell for this. Like, I'm the reason why this happened. I'm the stupid one, right? And my therapist really helped shape, reframe how I was thinking and saying, well, let's talk about how you grew up because, you know, everything stems from childhood, right? (laughs) Let's talk about what, what was modeled to you. Okay, so you were in a household where your dad had full control of finances, assets, all decisions, kids anything your dad had full control your Mm -hmm. mom raised you she made the food but your dad had control of the entire household right you were shown that it's okay to let the man do everything and make all choices that's point one and i'm like okay but i'm I'm still more liberal like i shouldn't have fallen for that i'm like she's like it doesn't matter that's what you thought was safe and then she would say well growing up you know because of the division of power your dad would sometimes yell at your mom, right? And your mom would just take it. She would just, you know, maybe go to her room softly and cry. But at the end of the day, she wouldn't yell back. You saw that. You probably thought it was wrong, but you saw that. And at the end of the day, you still think they love each other. They're still together. So it's probably fine. So whenever you were yelled at, instead of running for the hills, you're like, it's okay. Men get angry sometimes. It's mm-hmm. fine. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? As long as he doesn't raise his hands on me. You know, so like little things like that, you know, I I didn't realize that like I had been shaped to think that all this stuff was okay. Even though we know it's not okay, Mm -hmm. I was shaped, I was modeled to think this this was fine. And it got as far as it did because I hadn't been properly properly educated on one, like a model of what a good, healthy relationship looks like. And a lot of that is because I was sheltered. A lot of that was because I wasn't allowed to date. I wasn't exposed to the real world. I wasn't around people that looked like me who had the same circumstances, but ended up in healthy relationships. So that opened up a lot of, you know, what helped me heal. And I think I talk about that a lot in my social media, because I think it's important for younger girls to know what a healthy relationship looks like. 
and what yeah. it can be modeled to be because that whole dynamic of new immigrant parents coming to America is not always the healthiest relationship that should be modeled for them. Yeah. Wow. So much you said that we could unpack. First, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry you had that experience. A huge part of, you know, when you started explaining, I guess, the relationship in the beginning and, you know, sometimes we hear someone's story and it triggers something that happened to us or our experience or, you know, our knowledge or what have you. It sounds very much like this person, I guess you experience like narcissistic abuse, essentially, mm-hmm. because, if, you know, you talk about all the promises that they made in the beginning where they're very good at the future faking and making those mm-hmm. promises. You know, you mm-hmm. talked about the the religious abuse where when you're in a narcissistic abusive relationship, there are so many levels of abuse from emotional, psychological, spiritual, financial, mm-hmm. like the whole nine yards. And then sometimes it gets to it being physical, which it did in your case. And then even with him trying to push for you to get married sooner, like a huge part of being able to trust someone is getting to know them over time. It's, you know, mm-hmm. trust isn't built instantly. And with those type of personalities, they try to rush things and yeah. make you, you know, put your your wall down so you trust them immediately. And then they come in and then that's when, mm-hmm. you know, all hell breaks loose. And thankfully you had a family that believed you and supported you. So you mentioned, you know, when people will say things like, why, why didn't you just leave? What would you say to someone that's listening that even has that to say? Because very often, whenever someone is sharing their story of abuse, there's always someone out there that mm-hmm. wants to further victim shame the person yep. that's been abused. So what would you say to someone that's asking, why didn't you leave sooner? Or why don't women leave when they're being abused? You know, that's that's definitely, I, I definitely did want to answer that question today because even, even to this day, I am still getting comments like, Oh, but you still got married willingly. Like, I don't feel sorry for you. Still get comments like that daily. And it's just so important to share that they don't realize the amount of manipulation, the amount of trauma. We love, we, we call it trauma bonding. Yeah. You know, it's just this cycle of abuse of like insane highs, insane lows. But at the end of the day, like you're basically manipulated into it. You think it's your idea but it is the narcissist's manipulation that made you think this way. It's never in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. It's never, when you're trauma bonded, you seem like you're making an rational decision based on what you want, but it's not. It's rarely ever your choice, but it presents as your choice, you know? And that's why women and men, they get stuck in this type of cycles because they think they're making their own decision, but they're really not. They're yeah. really, really not. And if they were educated properly, you know, it would be different. Like me, for example, I kind of saw the red flags. But again, you know, he kept making promises that, you know, I kept falling for, you know, I kept looking for the good in this person. I kept thinking, Oh, remember how good it was in the beginning? I'm the reason why he's so upset now. So I just need to change and be a little bit better. So we can get back to that stage where he I really felt like he loved me. You know, so there was that always promise of him being better. And then once we got married and the physical abuse started, it was like, oh my God, like I just fought so hard to be with this man. This is so embarrassing. Like I just need to do better and he won't hit me. Like it's, it's just, it's simple. I just got to do better and he won't hit me again. But he, he's a really great guy outside of that, you know? So it's just constantly making false promises to yourself, thinking it's going to get better until it gets so bad that you just know it can't, mm-hmm. you know? And that's definitely what a lot, that's definitely what a lot of it is. And to further on that point, when I did finally get out, 
So kind of how it happened was I called my sister one day, you know, after I had, you know, a black eye and I had bruises everywhere. I called her just crying and crying and crying and saying, I just missed her and my family. And she just knew something was wrong. So immediately she's like, she lived in Austin. I was in California at the time. Immediately she's like, you're going to come visit me. I don't know what's wrong, but I have a feeling it's not good. You're coming to see me. And within 24 hours, I was on a flight to go see her, right? And once I got into that flight and I landed in Austin and she saw everything that had happened to me, she knew what happened. She knew I didn't fall down the stairs. And right away she she took my phone and that was it. Like I was out. Mm-hmm. There was no talking back and forth. Um, I, she showed my my parents. They flew out. She took me to the ER. I got a full workup. Like I wasn't thinking for myself at that point. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I just, I'm really sad. I just wanted to go somewhere safe. But I wasn't thinking, I'm going to leave this guy. I'm going to become this. I'm going to heal. I wasn't thinking any of that. I just needed comfort. And because I confided in somebody that I could trust, my sister took my phone away for two weeks. Like I had no communication with the outside world for two weeks because she knew that if she let me slip for a second, she was going to lose me, mm-hmm. you know? And even for the weeks following like me leaving him and me leaving that life, Every day I wanted to go back. Everyone was telling me what he did was wrong, but it didn't matter because I wanted to go back. I just, I don't know how else to explain it. I was ready to go back and give it another shot day after day after day. And I was crying and crying and crying because I wasn't ready to mourn the loss of that relationship. Right. I could have easily been stuck there for another two, three years. Easily. Yeah. If something in my mind didn't tell me to call my sister that day or the day after, you know? That's how easy it is. I'm saying like, I'm such a unique example is because when my family saw me, they completely like separated me from that relationship. Mm-hmm. After I'd come back to Austin, my sister like took my phone away. I didn't have one more word with that person that I was with my ex, my ex-husband. I, I didn't talk to him for the next 15 months. I didn't, I didn't text him, wow. I didn't email him. I didn't hear his voice. I was completely isolated from him because again, I think my family understood the gravity of the situation and they knew that if they didn't rip me out, they would lose me forever. Yeah. And again, I am so, so grateful for that because a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't, you know, and I didn't have the money to like secretly fly out to him. You know what I mean? I couldn't, I was stuck. I didn't have a, a penny to my name. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any assets. Like he was supposed to have provided all that for me because he was well off, you know? So I was, I had nothing. I was living on my sister's couch for three or four months. You know, they had a newborn, so they didn't have a room for me. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I did until I figured out what the next step was. I took like a three, four month pause to figure out what to do with my life. Wow. So a a couple of things you mentioned, Um, you mentioned, one, you wanting to go back when your family was um, protecting you. And it's very common for people that have been abused. It's like, what is it called? Um, is this Stockholm syndrome? I can't remember. Yeah. 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 Where basically you, you have empathy for the abuser and you, you see the good in that person. And because of the trauma bond, you don't see them as the monster that they are basically because they've always shown you the two sides. Right. So I wanted to, to touch on that. And then I wanted to touch on, thank God your family, you know, someone listening may not see it this way, especially if they have not been in an abusive relationship. But when you, are especially have been abused by a narcissist, they recommend that you go no contact because Mm -hmm. they have their methods and their ways to restart the cycle of abuse. So your sister taking your phone away and your family keeping you away from him, you were blessed to have that happen to you. And like you said, it doesn't 
that's not everyone's story. So yeah. what tips would you give for intervening to someone witnessing a loved one who's experiencing domestic violence right now? You know, that's one of the harder questions because, you know, I get, I get a lot of messages saying, you know, my mom is going through this and no matter how much times I tell her, she's not leaving him. And it's been years and we're so tired of seeing her get hurt, but there's like nothing we can do because she's not ready to leave. And mm -hmm. in reality, you know, not every situation is mine and you can't force somebody to leave a situation that they're not ready to leave, especially when they're 20 years in, you know, mm -hmm. or have a couple of kids or they don't have the finances to leave. And I just say like, be the friend that sticks with them for the day that they do decide to leave. Because, yeah. and when I say that, I don't say it lightly. I'm not saying that's going to be easy. I'm not going to say that's not going to come with a lot of disappointment and a lot of heartache because it will. But um, if they lose everyone in their life but the narcissist, that is basically saying goodbye to them forever. Yeah. Because you don't know how that, you know. But again, that's not the easiest thing to do. Sticking around somebody who's being abused, not. But what you can do is come up with like a plan for them. Mm -hmm. that they're comfortable with in the event that something happens and sometimes you know when they're ready they'll go through the plan halfway and then back out but again unfortunately that is just the way that it works you know but in the event that you do get lucky and they do get out and you are able to help them that's that's the best case scenario that i i have and i'm always willing to learn more about how how, how to help other women but you know there are shelters there's a shelter in austin that i used to volunteer for it's it's very beautiful you know mothers and children they would come and they would, they would live there for x weeks months but they would have a place to stay until they figured out where to go so at the end of the day like if you can't take them in, there are places for them to go, you know, to get resources. There's free consultations with lawyers and there's nurses and there's doctors available. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I also think a lot of people think that's stigmatized. Like, I want to go through all that when I live in a lavish house right now, mm -hmm. you know. So th there's just so many ways to unravel that question. But at the end of the day, I think it's be there for that person, but know what being there looks like. Right. Because you know, you're not going to be their savior but you can be their friend is there's nothing more powerful than that. Yeah. I think that's great advice because I, I feel like, I don't know what the actual stats are, but there's a huge amount of victims that go back to the abuser because they're not ready to leave. And because of the psychological abuse that has been done to them and the amount of manipulation. And it's important for their loved ones not to disown them at that point, because yeah. that's what the abuser wants. The yeah. abuser wants all the power and control over them. And like you said, it is challenging to be there for them, but know that when they do need someone that they can feel safe coming to you as a, a safe space. So, okay. So what is, what does healing mean to you today? Healing? Well, just like my journey after leaving the, um, the abuse has just obviously been life altering. You know, you don't see the world the same way. I mean, there was a, definitely a time where I thought love is dead. There's no such thing as healthy love. There's no such thing as meeting your soulmate. I was preaching that for a year or two. I'm like, you guys are all being stupid as hell. Uh, you're <laughs> faking it. Like, you're not going to be fit together forever. I was very much very cynical for a long time. I think I needed to be so I could be alone for a while and really understand what I wanted. And the biggest part of my healing was discovering my own freedom. Mm -hmm. not attached to a man. So a lot of that was my finances. So I was severely in debt. I didn't have any money. Uh, my family doesn't have any money. So it wasn't just like I was going to be taken in under my parents again. 
my choices after my divorce were either going back to North Dakota to live with my parents in their apartment or go to Austin, Texas and find an apartment, find a roommate, find a job and try to make it work. You know, right now I'm thinking I'm $10,000 in debt. I have lawyer fees. I don't know how to cook. I've never lived alone in my life because my mom cooked for me until I was like 22, right? So, but, you know, I decided that like, I knew if I went back to North Dakota, I would probably be a lot more depressed than, you know, trying to start new. So I decided my sister lives in Austin. Let me go to Austin. I got a room in a four roommate situation. You know, I got a job that paid me $14 an hour. And if you know, in Austin, Texas, that's definitely below, that's right at the poverty line. You know, unfortunately, it's kind of sad because a lot of people get paid $14 an hour. But I'm like, I'm just going to make this work. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go therapy. I'm going to fight for myself. It took a while. Every month I was going into severe debt. But you know, I'm just like, whatever I do, I need to move forward. I, I just can't move backwards. I don't know what forward looks like. I don't know what the next year is going to look like. But I just want to move forward. Took a lot of time, took a lot of debt. But you know, eventually. I got into a stable living situation. I think a year and a half later, I got into my master's program, got my nursing license a year later, finally paid off my debt, finally paid off my lawyer debt, you know, any other debt that I had in my life, started having a savings, you know, um, started to become a professional and an advocate. And eventually it's like, I keep thinking like, what if I had just gone back to live with my parents? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I would not have finally been I wouldn't have gotten the freedom I finally got, you know, I like finally, I like jumped off the ledge and I said, I don't know if I'll make it, but it's worth trying. It's worth trying, you know, and then finally becoming that person that's financially independent, you know, after growing up, like, so poor my whole life being like, I have some money now, you know, I have a degree, nobody can tell me what to do, ever, (laughs) you know, I'm not relying on nobody for money, you know, I have all these real life experiences, I had my own job, I had my own degree. So it became moving forward, a relationship in my life became more what can you do for me emotionally? Because yeah. I got the rest. Yeah. You yeah. cannot offer me anything else. What what in addition can you do to me? Yeah. Do for me. You know what I mean? Because I'm I'm also happy now too. Can you yeah. add to that? Or are you gonna, you know, add stress to that? So my getting freedom from me and not having it attached to my dad or or my husband or anything like that completely changed my healing journey and that's what I always try to preach to everybody who's like oh I can't wait to get married to leave the house or I can't wait till this age to do this I'm like you have to shape your reality you have to make your own freedom and that's that's the biggest asset you can have for yourself yeah you said it so beautifully like the the way that you have taken a leap of faith and bet on yourself and have become independent and your doing for yourself what you want to do. You found your own freedom. And then now looking years later, where at time of this recording, it's been five days, you're now newly married. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let's talk about the positive side of, um, well, let's talk about the work that you had to do on you to be able to attract the love that you have now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people think that, you know, I I found a healthy love and, you know, there's no more problems anymore. It's not the case because marriage is a work in progress. And so, so is a healthy relationship. So, you know, if you, if you try to compare and it's not really good to compare, but for the situation, I will, you know, I got married within like five months of meeting my ex. Right. And here it took like almost four to five years to build the right type of connection because 
even though I was healing, I wasn't fully healed at the time of me starting my relationship with my husband, right? And there was a lot of, I don't know if I fully believe in marriage, but I, I really like you. You are really special to me. I want to see where this bond grows, you know? And I remember a very pivotal moment of our relationship last year in April where I was like, it feels like the next step is marriage, but I don't know if I can do that again, mm. you know? And it took a lot of him being patient with me, being like, okay, I accept that you don't feel like that. How do you want to proceed? to you and he recommended do you want to go to maybe like a couples counselor do you want to do like individual therapy how can I support you to help you navigate what you want to do next and that kind of hit me because he wasn't like we need to get married or we break up you know he's like I want to know what it is like what are you going through so we decided to go the couples therapy route and um he got to learn a lot about like why I was afraid of marriage Mm -hmm. you know because anytime I think of marriage I think about my trauma right? right so I have no I had no way of healthily associating a marriage um we talked through it in therapy for months and i finally realized that i I wasn't crazy like it's okay for me to be afraid of marriage not the actual married part um and he kind of held my hand through the entire process never forced it on me and he waited until i said i'm ready because i love you and i trust you trusting a person after going through something so terrible for me it took years you know Mm -hmm. even though like he's a good man you know like I feel bad that like I gave a bad man my trust right away it took it took me years to give a good man my trust you know but the right person the right partners will be willing to do all that with you and now like you know it just it feels great like fully giving your heart to somebody after you thought that there was no way to possibly do that it's definitely a different type of love. It's a different type of deeper connection, I can say. And it, it doesn't come without its troubles. Trust me, just a week ago, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do this. What am I doing? You know, and then all my friends and family are like, it's okay. You're allowed to feel like that. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. You know, instead of being like, you shouldn't be feeling like that, you know. Um. So it took a while. It took a lot. But I'm super happy with, you know, just with everything that's come this far. And I um, I couldn't be more grateful at the end of the day. I love that for you on so many different levels. Again, when I started following you, it was because I totally resonated with your trauma. But to now see the flip side of that, it's beautiful to see. And I think having family and friends that validate your feelings, because I think I think it was like episode 205, um, I spoke to a guest and we were talking about how we both had you know, traumatic relationships, but are now in healthy relationships, but how that still comes with triggers Mm -hmm. and having to work through your past trauma and being with someone that is patient enough to work through those traumas with you so that you feel safe in that relationship. So I I think it's, it's beautiful. And it's, I think it's important that you spoke to, you know, even when you're in a loving relationship with a deep connection, it does still have its challenges because you're healing. You're, we're all a work in progress, right? There are things that your partner may do. And although they're an amazing human being, it may trigger a feeling that you had, and then you start spiraling down this, you know, different path. So it's understanding that it's not the person and you're not really comparing the person, but they triggered a feeling because the way that our subconscious mind works, which is it's our feeling mind, but it doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's not. So if you feel something and it triggers that memory or that emotion, your mind thinks that that's happening right now. So your reaction is valid. 
So it's important for people to understand that even after you've experienced traumatic relationships and toxic relationships and abuse, that it is possible in a healthy relationship to still have those triggers. Yes, I agree. And I think the one example of that that just happened in the past two weeks was like, I found myself being very unkind to my husband and being like every little mistake, I was like hypercritical of it, like, see, you, you just, you just messed up. See, this is why this is not going to work because of that. And then, you know, mm-hmm. you start catastrophizing everything, every little thing that they do, you know, mm-hmm. I, I like, I wasn't giving him a break. Like I, my senses were at all time high. Cause it's like getting up to the marriage, you know, um, just, just being remember, just being mindful, of, like just being kind to your partner. Cause at mm-hmm. the end of the day, like, even though this is a good relationship, healthy, like they're still humans. Yeah. They mess yeah. up just like us. <laughs> Yeah. That doesn't mean they're a narcissistic, abusive person. You right. know what I mean? Our brain, my brain still thinks like that sometimes. So I have to catch myself, you know, yeah. but be aware, be aware and be open to love again. Cause I really yeah. think it's possible. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think one thing that we don't realize is sometimes our anxiety, we create these self-fulfilling prophecies right. um, where, you know, we can be with someone great, but because we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, we keep focusing and looking for the negative. And then yeah. we're hyper, you know, focusing on the small things that they do that are not the greatest. And then we create, yeah. I guess, more challenges within the relationship than it needs to be. So sometimes we have to self-check and reflect and say, okay, well, why do I feel this way? Is it because this is what this person is doing or something I experienced previously? I couldn't have said that better myself. Like that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, I've been through some stuff. (laughs) I know. I have been, um, so it's been about a year and a half that I have been in what I feel is the most healthiest, safe, and loving, connected relationship I've ever been in. And I've had relationships where I've experienced narcissistic abuse, the whole nine yards, the financial, psychological, emotional, you name it. So being able to just like you take that time to be alone and work through me and now get to this space where I realize every day I'm a work in progress. So I can't expect anyone else to be perfect. Um, But understanding like this healing journey, it's uncomfortable, but it can be really beautiful. So being open to love. I think a lot of times when we experience toxic relationships, a lot of us become bitter and want to be very closed off. And at the end of the day, we're wired for connection. So we're actually self-sabotaging by doing that. So being able to be open um, is a beautiful thing. I completely self-sabotaging. <laughs> That's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could like create a, a part two on just that alone. <laughs> yeah, no, I really think so. And just like life after after healing and <sighs> I think a lot of people just need to know, like, you know, like after something so traumatic happens, what is really a red flag and what is it that our anxiety is telling us is bad? You know, mm-hmm. like it's yeah. a little tricky. <laughs> Agreed. So I'm definitely going to have to have you back for part two because there's so many more things that we could unpack. But yes. before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they can stay connected with you online and learn more from you and about you. Yeah, definitely. So um, I post a lot of my content on TikTok and Instagram at OVO underscore N-E-S-A Nessa. I love when people DM me or just like comment on my stuff. You know, I love being interactive with y'all. So and you can definitely um, on my bio, I have my email on there as well as it's an at gmail.com. Feel free to email me or message me. I'd love to hear from everybody. 
Love it. Perfect. So I'll have all of your direct links in the details section below the episode so they can just click and connect with you. They don't have to search too far. And for the final segment of the show, it's kind of like a rapid fire. And I just ask you uh, reflective questions and you just say the first thing that comes to mind. You Okay. All right. What's one thing you forgive yourself for? Um, guilt for leaving my relationship. Okay. Describe yourself in one word. Moody. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. When was the last time you cried? Happy or sad tears. Either one works. Probably probably like two days ago. Okay. When was the last time you apologized to someone? Yesterday. What's the best advice you've ever received? Ooh, I have so many. Let me think. I want it to be a good one. It's not your fault for all the bad things that happen in your life. Love it. Okay. And last but not least, what do you wish women would do more of? Invest in themselves. Perfect. Thank you so much, Anessa, for your transparency, for sharing your journey and your experiences and the tools that helped you get to where you are today. I truly, truly appreciate you. And I believe like it's so important for the content that you put out to help educate other women and other people who are in the space where you were and just need to see that they are not alone. So thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for having me. Honestly, sessions like this, I feel like I was in a therapy session (laughs) and I feel, you know, rejuvenated. I feel like I got a lot of my energy back. So I really appreciate you for creating such an environment where I I felt so safe to stop talk. Thank you. I I get goosebumps hearing that. And for me, it's these conversations are a form of therapy for me, but it's always very heartwarming when the guest, and it's usually by the time we stop recording, the guest says the same thing, like, whoa, that felt like therapy. It really did. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for just being uh, so open. Of course. (laughs) And to all of you healers out there, until next time, subscribe on all platforms. Don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what your aha moments were. We'd love to hear what parts of Anessa's story that you resonated with. Feel free to screenshot this episode and you can tag us on Instagram. You can tag her at OVO underscore Nessa. You can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith. A healthy community is a healing community and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its people weather, survive, and thrive. So let's continue to heal her.